Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Smarter machines and tools to work safely with humans. Now, robotic exoskeleton suits may seem like science fiction, but they can help people today keep safe from repetitive strain injuries. But using them requires skill and training. Plus, we find out about ways to keep your head safer by making and designing safer helmets with new materials and processes. When you think of advanced technology, one thing that often comes to mind is cyborgs. Augmented humans with mechanical or robotic assistance. This could be in various forms, and whilst you might think of this as science fiction, something that you see in a near-future set TV show or movie, it's actually something that is becoming more and more commonplace. In particular, you might see in the barrage of advertisements and in the information flowing out of Japan while they celebrate the Olympics, things like the Toyota-powered exoskeletons, which have been in place and use in car factories now for a fair amount of time. These assisted lifting devices basically act as ways for people to lift large loads repetitively, with lowered risk of straining or damaging themselves. These powered exoskeletons are an interesting adaption. Rather than simply remove the human in the loop and replace it with some kind of industrialised robot, this keeps the human as part of the manufacturing process, but makes them a bit more efficient by powering them and assisting their muscles, preventing them from being strained by giving them that extra boost that they need. Now, these wearable exoskeletons are obviously limited by things like battery life, and they're used in a whole variety of applications, whether it be car factories, to the military, to cavi hairy backpacks, or even in medical applications, to assist patients without strain for nursing staff. Now, these devices are fascinating, but new research from Ohio State University's Spine Research Institute, published in the journal Applied Ergonomics, starts to look at the unintended consequences of using a robotic exoskeleton. And this is, of course, not talking about a Skynet-style robotic apocalypse or super-powered cyborgs, but rather what can happen when you use a suit and how much good it actually does for you. Now, lead authors on this paper were Yibuzu, Eric B. Weston, Ahana Mehta, and William Maris. And they were working together with researchers from Texas A&M University to study the impact that a robotic exoskeleton suit would have, not just on people's muscles, but also people's brains. And the results were quite surprising. Now, for the starting point, these researchers took 12 people, six men, six women, and got them to repeatedly lift a medicine ball, a large, heavy, spherical object, in two 30-minute sessions. Now, if you've ever done any time lifting a medicine ball, you'll know that's a pretty strenuous activity. So basically, these people were forced to do some pretty hard work repetitively. The ideal case where an exoskeleton would really benefit you. Now, they had one control sessions where the participants wore an exoskeleton and one where they did not. But they added a third step. They also repeated the same exercise with the robotic exoskeleton, but at the same time as doing the lifting, they also had to do some math. They were to subtract 13 from a random number between 500 and 1,000 each time they lifted the ball. So in this case, you have three. A zero case where there's no assistance, a case where there's mechanical assistance, 
And a case where there's mechanical assistance, but you have to really use your brain as well, not just the same repetitive task. That gives an interesting real-world type situation, which is still comparable. Now, how do they compare them? Well, the thing is, they used infrared sensors to evaluate the participant's brain activity during the lifting process. And they also measured the force on each of the participant's lower back during the session. Now, the reason why they measured the force on the lower back is because this exoskeleton that they were using was attached to the user's chest and legs. And the design of it is actually to help control posture and motion during a repetitive lifting task. Say, for instance, a large heavy ball from the ground and up. It's trying to protect your lower back and reduce the possibility of injury. Now, this might seem crazy, aside from pretty hardcore gym heads who are trying to do large kettlebell or medicine ball sessions, who else is going to be doing this? Well, lifting a large load from the ground to carrying height is a very typical process and a very large source of injury. Most companies try to get around this by limiting the exposure to that task or by having mechanical device to assist, or by simply lifting everything up to a standard height, say off a conveyor or a trolley, so that people don't have to bend down and lift. That bending down and lifting part is where people tend to injure themselves. The benefit of an exoskeleton, in theory, is that it helps you with that lift. It gives you that support. But to do that, it has to work with you. It has to anticipate your moves and give you the boost where you need it, not boost in the direction you don't want it to go. And if this is out of sync, if you're not drift compatible to use Pacific Rim speak, well, it's almost like dancing with a really bad partner. As senior author on the paper, William Maris, a professor of integrated systems engineering at Ohio State University, outlined. And this is exactly what the researchers saw. In the different types of tasks that they passed with, there was clearly less load on the lower backs when they used the exoskeleton compared to the control case of no support. That made sense. But when they added in that mental calculation step, that additional factor, well, what they saw was actually a decrease in performance. This was quite surprising, but in many ways makes sense because the human mind is busy, overloaded, trying to figure out this mental math task. At the same time, it's trying to figure out how to work with this exoskeleton to use the tool in the way it actually boosts it. I'm not sure if you've ever walked on stilts or maybe you've walked on shoes that were slightly uncomfortable or new or had long things on your hand. Your brain has to do a lot of calculations on how to correctly use this new apparatus as part of your body. It's not just like simple walking. Over time, sure, that may change, but while you're starting out especially and while you're doing some tasks, you have to actually think, use a lot of mental energy. The problem is... When you use this mental energy and you add another task, which also requires mental energy, mathematics in this case, well, all of a sudden, your brain starts to do a lot of things at once. And when they saw the brain activity, they saw there was a lot of competition for the resources in the brain. As Maris outlines, the person was doing that mental math, but the brain was also trying to figure out how to help the body interact with the exoskeleton. And that confused the way the brain recruited the muscles to perform the task. Because the muscles sort of competing with each other and the brain is sort of saying, okay, you don't go here, you go here, lift this way, don't lift this way. And the brain is sort of overruling the normal behavior of lifting because, of course, the exoskeleton is helping out as a partner in this dance. But the brain couldn't do that smoothing and coordination task efficiently. It was overloaded doing maths. Now, this has some pretty big implications for the use of exoskeletons. 
And it's not that exoskeletons are bad. It's that people are messy and human. And that's an important part of it. That's why people would be interested in using exoskeletons in the first place. But the adaption of a human body to working with any tool requires time, skill, experience, and practice. It's not something that you can do simply automatically. And in the same way, like riding a bike or walking on stilts, using an exoskeleton, a tool as part of your everyday work, requires some adjustment in your body, some building of muscle memory and some coordination with that dance partner until you can do it really without thinking. If you just try to throw in their exoskeleton and expect people to be able to perform complex tasks now fast, well, you'll find that actually the results may not be as good. In fact, what they saw in the study was not only were the results not good, the brain worked less efficiently and the forces on the back actually increased rather than decreased. So in this case, the exoskeleton was actually harming the participants more than actually helping them because they weren't working in sync. Now, of course, sufficient training and building of experience in muscle memory would decrease that. But it just goes to show, simply throwing an exoskeleton, which in and of itself is a very expensive tool, onto an untrained worker won't actually make that worker safer or improve their productivity. Exoskeletons can be a useful tool to avoid injury, but they require careful training and use. There's a great paper from Ohio State Spine Research Institute published in the journal Applied Ergonomics. advanced tool assisting humans in daily life to one that you probably would be much more familiar with and probably have worn more recently. That's a helmet. Now helmets are important. They are designed to spread the force of an impact across the surface of it and depending on the type of helmet you're wearing to also have some absorbency. The main aim, like with any collision, is to do two things. Reduce point load, spread that load, and also to increase the time, the contact time of a collision. If you do these things, the amount of energy absorbed inside your body is re reduced. That means less injury for you. So when it comes to something like a bicycle helmet, you'll see they're normally made of two components. The first part is a hard outer shell. Typically you'll find these are produced from a general plastic that's available like say polycarbonate. Then, underneath that hard layer, you'll end up with some kind of foam. Perhaps maybe expanded polystyrene foam, the same you'd find in packaging or takeaway. Now, as mentioned, the design here has two roles. The outer shell, made of polycarbonate, designed to crack and dissipate all of that energy from that point load across the entire surface of the helmet. Then, underneath that, the foam layer is designed to then compress and absorb the remaining, the bulk of the impact energy, so that the head itself is safely nestled inside. This is why, if you ever have something fall on a hard hat, or if you have a big crash, you need to replace the helmet. That helmet has done its job, because the force will be dissipated across it and it will be cracked in some ways. It's time then to get a new helmet, if you can. Now... Researchers from Nanyang Technological University in Singapore, NTU, have been working with a materials provider from France, Arkema, to develop a new type 
of material to be used in bite helmets, a one that has a higher energy absorption and reduces the amount of energy that's actually transferred to the cyclist's head in the event of an accident. That's important because that will lower the risk of a serious injury. And according to the World Health Organization report in 2020, more than 60% of the reported bicycle-related deaths or long-term disabilities are a result of an accident with head injuries. So clearly, a safer helmet means direct live saved, in the sh clearly live saved, and also less damage from those that do manage to survive, they won't have as debilitating injuries. Now this research was published in the journal Composites Part B Engineering, and lead author on this paper was Goram Gohel, along with a lot of other collaborating authors, including Somen Bultarali, Shanmuga Bala, Subarmayam Alicity, Kaifai Leong, and Pierre Girard. Now, these researchers worked together from NTU with the materials company to design and develop a new type of material to be used as part of a new helmet design. As we talked about before, the fact that the foam is involved means the foam absorbs some of the energy. But the problem is that foam is protecting your head by absorbing some energy, but at the same time is in contact with your head. So the more and more energy that the foam absorbs, the more and more energy is getting close to your head. And yes, the foam reduces that force loading, but it's still there. So realistically, you don't want that 75% of the energy being absorbed by the foam. It's not ideal because that foam is in direct contact with your head. So if there was a better design that reduced that loading on the foam and had more on that plastic, well, you're reducing the amount of energy that actually makes it all the way to the head. Now, what they developed was a carbon fiber composite helmet that replaces that top polycarbonate layer with one of a reinforced carbon fiber. Now, this is useful because the reinforcement makes that outer shell tougher, stiffer, and importantly, less brittle. Now, that's really useful because it means the helmet can take a lot more load. But it also does another crucial thing. It increases the helmet's total contact time which also really does have a significant role in reducing the amount of force, much like a crumple zone. Now, this means that outer shell can absorb way more energy over a longer period and dissipate it evenly around the helmet rather than just in a point load that fractures like you would have in a traditional plastic helmet. The end result of that is, of course, way less force reaching the head. So less force at the head, less force getting into getting into causing a serious critical injury. Now, the composite helmet shell absorbed around 50% of the impact energy in the outer layer, and the foam absorbed around 35%. That's a pretty good result. And how they tested all of this is by basically taking the helmet and putting it on an anvil, a flat, hemispherical, or a curb, so pyramid-shaped angle, basically trying to stress test it in all of the ways a bicycle helmet could hit the ground. These are the standard tests for, say, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission that's used for certification of a bicycle helmet. And what they looked at was things like peak acceleration. And that can be used to measure how much force the helmet takes and how much it's passed on at the point of view. Now, a helmet should have a peak acceleration of less than 300 G to be deemed safe for use. And lower the G-force, the more safer it is. And what they found is these helmets are actually getting into the high 190s, basically 190 Gs, which is a big deal less, two-thirds less than the actual minimum requirement, which is pretty good. But that's in the 
worst case. When they looked at the more hemispherical and curbstone type situations, they were even able to achieve down to 100G, which is pretty surprising. That is a one third of the actual requirement to be a helmet. So from an industry standard, it is having one third less force. Now, these are a pretty good result for a material and for a helmet design. And when you apply these using the head injury criterion, basically a probabilistic mechanism for determining how serious an injuries and fatalities can be reduced using a helmet. You look at the peak acceleration and the time of acceleration, and you use these numbers to basically calculate out the risk or likelihood of an injury. And what they showed is that this type of helmet design could reduce critical and fatality injury rates by about half. And that is pretty surprising. A 50% reduction from 28% of uh, injury rate to around 16%, that's a pretty good drop, and a fatality rate from 6% down to 3%. When you compare it to a standard helmet, that's a pretty substantial improvement. Now, when you think about it, uh, many people use bikes, and more and more are now taking up cycling as an efficient and green way to transport themselves around a city. And a helmet is essential to keep you safe while doing so. But the standard helmet also needs to adapt and change to really keep people safe because head injury can be quite serious and debilitating even if you manage to survive it. So thus, reducing that impact load with newer designs of helmets and changing designs of helmets that are still economical would have a real big significant improvement on many people's quality of life and ability to survive dangerous collisions. There's some great research from Nanyang Technological University published in the journal Composites Part B Engineering. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From making bicycle helmets safer with carbon fiber and new materials, to making effective and safe use of exoskeletons to avoid back injury. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.